Welcome to Spacers. This week we have Sam Richard, UI architect for IBM's Watson on the show. I had an amazing talk with him. It's just also, I didn't, I've been friends with him for a while, but I just, it's wonderful to see since he's been working on the web. So it's been really awesome to, to hear about his background and get into, into that a lot. Also, we um, talk about uh, his new SaaS linting tool as well. So definitely if you use SaaS, uh, check it out. Um, but yeah, but it was so awesome to see like, how much he's done in a short period of time, uh, helping uh, governments, agencies, government organizations, and also big companies uh, have better empathy uh, for their users, as well as also for uh, uh, engineers and designers uh, alike. So, and the thing is, like, he's mostly an engineer too, so he's you know has that uh, empathy for designers and for the front end, which which is uh, crazy awesome. So. Um, some show notes, uh, some things going on uh, with, with my life. Uh, I'll be hosting the UX Rebels Summit. Uh, it's an online conference on November 17th. Um, it's great for free, uh, UX freelancers and professionals, uh, or freelance professionals. Uh, so check it out at uxrebelssummit.com. And get ticket. tickets are like $99. You know, it's pretty pretty cheap. You get like six uh, sessions um, and all recordings with that too. Uh, also, you know, we're, t- we're talking with Sam Richard about SaaS. So um, I'm also hosting the SaaS Summit on November 18th and 19th. So it's right after the UX Rebel Summit. So it's sassummit.com. It's two days filled with awesome SaaS uh, sessions. And actually, Sam is, is speaking there too. So uh, check it out. I hope to see you there. Um, as for Not Breaking Space, please uh, uh, subscribe via iTunes. Go to the uh, iTunes, uh, do a podcast search for the non-breaking space show and uh, subscribe that way you always get the latest show. And while you're there, please uh, give us a five-star rating. If you don't mind, uh, just let us know um, what we're doing, what you guys think of the show. I uh, really appreciate it. It helps, you know, a lot of effort um, to put on the show. It's not myself. It's also Chris ends and also uh, Sam cap who uh, can't be here all the time, but, but um, she helps out a lot. So, um, and also if you're a fan of the show and don't mind doing a little, voice work for us um just doing some bumpers and here and there i think it'd be kind of fun just to get some other voices into the mix as well uh just give us a holler at our twitter handle at uh, it's at nbsp tv on twitter and just let us know if you're up for it and we'll get in touch with you that's it for now uh, enjoy the show and uh see you next week So what you out to uh, recently? Uh, so I just got back from JSConf EU, where oh. I gave a talk on cognitive computing and how uh, things like Watson, which is where I work, um, can change the way that we think about user experiences for apps. Okay. How so? Uh, so things like um, really the the goal of cognitive computing is to be able to provide um, to be able to work on kind of human complex problems, problems that traditionally need humans to, to kind of figure out um, using human natural input and output. So uh, probably the best known example of a cognitive application is a personal assistant like Siri or Google Now, 
where you can speak into it. It'll figure out what you mean. It'll find the answer and it'll speak the answer back to you. Um, okay. Yeah. So that's a personal assistant pattern that we see a lot of. And that's kind of like the first cognitive application everyone's been introduced to. Okay. Yeah. So like, so like Siri or Alexa or something like that, right? Yeah, exactly. Or, or the uh, Whopper from War Games. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> okay. Cool. So, uh, so anything interesting that like any highlights from your talk or you want to not give it away? Or, or well, so the, the video will be posted soon because JS yeah. does an awesome job posting all their videos. Um, mm. I built a, a fun little app that is speech to speech translation. So you speak it in, you speak in English and mm. then it translates to like French and then speaks it back at French. Um, that so. you hold not real-time conversation, but pretty close to like real face-to-face conversations in native languages. Um, right. And then I showed off Chef Watson, which is always fun to show off, which I didn't build the team at IBM built. Um, but Chef Watson is cooking with cognitive capabilities. And there is this great little, um, the, the idea of Chef Watson is we ingested Bon Appetit's recipes yeah. and the uh, chemical compounds of all the ingredients. And kind of let Watson go to work on it. Um, so it's been able to find connections we wouldn't otherwise be able to see. And the interface is something like you say you want to use this ingredient and this ingredient. Um, and it invents a recipe for you. And I did a, a call out from the audience. And because I was at a tech conference, the first ingredient was bacon. Of course. Right. And then not get away from bacon. Yes. Yeah, I know. And then the second ingredient someone asked there, someone called out was soy sauce. Um, okay. Right. And then Chef decided that it knew where we were going, uh, and decided to pair bacon with more bacon. Um, because of course, if you have bacon, you need more bacon. Bacon, soy sauce, uh, let's go back to bacon. Yeah, pretty much. Uh, and then it had the greatest bug ever, something that I absolutely positively could never reproduce ever. But what it was, it decided to give us undefined dumplings. As the recipe, and it's so perfectly at a JavaScript conference. Bacon. That undefined dumplings. It gave us undefined dumplings. So was there a recipe, or did they just like uh, I'm just going to drop you here at undefined dumplings? Well, so there was a recipe to it. It was the title of whatever the recipe it generated. Oh, okay. right. But the title part came back undefined. So, so it was so the recipe, the ingredients were double bacon. Soy sauce. Anything else? Uh, I don't know what the connections yeah. were. When you dive into the recipe, it'll it gives you a whole recipe. Yeah. Uh, we did it at the end of the talk, and I don't remember what came out of it yeah, at the end of the. Um, that's pretty awesome. Though. It came up with undefined bacon. But undefined dumplings was the best. That, that's awesome. That is pretty good. That's pretty sweet. Cool, man. Uh, yeah. So, how did so you work at IBM Watson? I think it's probably one of those. Uh, probably high-profile projects IBM has. Now, I guess I hate to say that out loud because I might be embarrassed because I might be another IBM project I don't know about uh, that I should know about. So, um, but yeah, so how did you, uh, uh, I guess, you know, how did, how did you get to IBM Watson? And then I guess you want to start from the very beginning, like how did you get involved into the web? And then how did you end up working with the, with the Watson team? Yeah, sure. So, um yeah, I, Watson is, is one of our highest profile um, projects at IBM. There was just an announcement um, 
last week, I think, a project called OutThink, which is our vision of like the future cognitive business, which centers around uh, Watson a lot. Um, so yeah, that's where I work. Uh, my journey into web development is interesting. Um, after college, I wound up getting a job with the New York State Senate. And uh, I had originally applied for a developer position, but they didn't have any available. They were looking for someone with a little bit more experience than me. Um, so I wound up taking a job as essentially a print project manager for a couple of the state senators. And while I was there, I kept in good contact with the CIO's office. And like one of the first things they did was they sent me to a Drupal training. Drupal is a PHP-based content management system. Right. It's one of the most popular ones, right? Yeah, and we act, uh, the Drupal community actually just released the RC of Drupal 8, which is the next version of Drupal. Mm. Um, so that's pretty exciting for the community. Uh, but yeah, I got sent to a Drupal training, like one of my first weeks on the job. Um, and after about two or three months being a print PM for our, our couple senators. Um, so yeah, print PM is project manager or print? Yeah. So I was a project manager for print jobs for our senators. Um, so did you have print background beforehand? Or? No, not. It wasn't, it, it wasn't so much. Uh, I didn't so much need a print background as I needed to be able to control requests coming in from senators and okay. say, yes, you have the budget to go print this. Uh, uh, so like, so the, the key master of the, of, of the flow of requests and so that to make sure and be able to be polite and tell, tell senators from New York to like, no. Yeah, pretty much. It's <laughs> the main responsibilities. Okay, my, cool. Awesome. My, my job basically was to be the gatekeeper in base camp. Right. Um, and then after a couple months doing that, um, a position opened in the CIO's office. Uh, I kept up with the CIO's team when checking visit on them. And they basically took a chance on me as a developer. And I started as a back-end developer with them working on the New York State Senate uh, website. Um, the CIO at the time was a guy named Andrew Hoppin. Um, and the guy who was like the lead tech evangelist, I guess is the way, a good way to describe his role. It was a guy named Noel, uh, Noel Hidalgo. Both people um, who have been in the Drupal community for a long time in the open source community and open gov community for a while. And both still are. Uh, and then the, my developer there was a guy named Sheldon Rampton. And between Sheldon and Noel, they basically taught me how to do PHP development in a Drupal world. Um, and I started off as a backend developer and I did that for a couple of months. I built one feature. There. Yeah. So, so what, what tricks or tips do you have for, to be a PHP developer in the Drupal world that you've, that you've Yeah. So, um, the best trick I can give you to being a PHP developer is always have the PHP docs open. Okay. Uh, the, the, every single PHP developer I know from the most junior to the most senior, no one has anything memorized. Everyone just uses the PHP docs. Okay. So use the PHP docs. They are your friend. Um, and IRC. IRC was a big learning tool for me. Being able okay. to just kind of jump into a conversation and ask a question and get an answer is great, okay. especially the Drupal community. Yeah. Cool. Now. Yeah. 
But so so you're a couple months into Drupal and they taught you PHP development. And so so sorry, so that's where you were? Yeah, so that's where I was. And then um, we got this project to build, to take the summer reading program that the New York State Senate runs and move mm-hmm. it from paper to online uh, to build the very first web-based version. Mm-hmm. And I kind of became a full stacky developer for that. Um, at the time it was right around when Drupal seven came out. Uh, mm-hmm. so it was, there was a lot of like new ground to cover. Mm-hmm. And I also learned about responsive web design and around that time. It was about a year, maybe a little bit less after the article came out. Um, mm-hmm. so that would be what 2000, I don't know what, what year would that be? 2011? Five years old at this point, I think. 2010. Okay. Yeah. So maybe 2010, 2011, something like that is when I was building this. Okay. Right? That, yeah, that sounds right. Um, so I really wanted to build this responsibly because I kind of had a feeling even then that um, this was something big and this is something that needed to happen. Mm-hmm. And through kind of the full stack work I did there, I did some of the design work too, which if you've seen me try and do design since then, <laughs> imagine the early <laughs> career doing that. Um, and it worked really well and it got me like this big love of the front end. And I found the challenges of the front end were a lot more interesting than the challenges of the back end because they involved users and yeah. they involved, um, different ways that people can interact with something, but it also involves, it's not just a static system more or less. It's mm-hmm. like constantly dynamic and changing. And that really intrigued me as a set of problems. Um, and it also scratched my designery photography itch. Um, so I kind of glommed on to front-end development after that project. Um, and then from there, I worked for a digital agency. Um, so I just want to speak, so what type of user like input did you, did you get any user feedback from, from that? Did you have to make any changes? Did you like, cause you're, you're building this summer reading program or, yeah. Uh, yeah. And then like, so how did you like, did you build something and someone said like, Oh, you're not building it for the users or you just, you just were aware of front end support from it. Yeah. So we, we had a pretty, the, the summer reading program had been going on for a very long time. Okay. Uh, so we had, it was basically transferring the experience of filling out a form with the books that have been read uh, from a paper form to an online form. Mm-hmm. Um, so we didn't do any real user research or get a lot of user feedback. It was mostly internal to the team, but we had a strong idea of what they were, what like the flow needed to be already. Mm-hmm. Um, but the user feedback we got after it had launched and after it was done for the summer was really positive. Everyone really seemed to enjoy it who participated in it. And if I remember correctly, even after I left the Senate, they kept the website running for multiple years. So um, it seems to have done well. Right. Cool. Yeah. Okay. So it's still still around. Cool. So, so you you had more of a love of a front end after that. And, and where'd you go from, from that, from that project? Yeah, so from from there, that was the last project did it, I did at the Senate. Um, and then I moved to a digital agency. Um, uh-huh. And I worked there for a couple months before finding Noel again at the World Economic Forum. Um, so then I moved and I worked for the World Economic Forum, um, working on an internal CMS 
mm-hmm. our CRM type system. And that's where I really learned. Uh, that's the first time I had worked with a real designer uh, directly on a project, someone who mm-hmm. I could sit next to. And I learned a lot from that experience. That experience taught me, uh, kind of formed how I understand pair design um, and how I understand. It was like it laid the foundation for me to be able to speak in the design world, not just the tech world. Um, yeah. So the designer I worked with was a guy named Cameron Barrett, I believe was his last name. Oh, yeah. yeah. Um, you know, Cam- he, can you describe him? Uh, he's kind of a bit tall, biggish, uh-huh. white guy with bald head. Yes, that's him. Yes, yeah. Cool. Yeah, last last time I saw him, he was at South by Southwest. I think it was like Gore versus Bush hadn't happened yet, <laughs> but he was working on um, uh, Democratic campaigns uh, for the blogging and for their just they blogs are big back then. And, uh, yeah, so he was, he was doing consulting for them. So that's awesome. Cool. Yeah. So Cameron was the first designer I worked with kind of side by side and my, the way that I teach pair design now and the way mm-hmm. that I practice pair design really came from my interactions with him. Where, so awesome. Yeah. Yeah. Go ahead. Sorry. You're about to explain it. Yeah. Sorry. So, so what we wound up doing is we were working on this and, um, he, he, uh, he knew that he hadn't done HTML in a while, but that he wanted to like iterate quickly in HTML. And I knew that I could iterate quickly in HTML. So we would literally sit next to each other at the same computer. Um, and we would push pixels around together and he would be my eyes and I would be the hands and we would work together and collaborate and kind of bounce off each other. Um, and so we found what we liked and it worked really well. And that's how uh, we did it responsibly too. Cause that was the big thing that I was pushing for. Um, yeah. That works fantastically. Cool. Yeah. So is is that and so by pair design? I mean, just uh, is it just uh, working with a designer and and developer at the at, at the same desk and computer? Is that what it is? And I'm just you know. yeah. So so the way that uh, I don't know if pair design is the right word. Pair design is the word I've been using for a couple of years now. But mm-hmm. it's the idea of pair programming, except instead of you pairing with another developer, you pair with mm-hmm. a designer as a front-end developer um, and work together to create the experience in the browser. So it's not a designer going off and coding in browser um, on their own necessarily, but it's, it's really a partnership. Um, when I brought this to NBC, which was my next stop, um, it was the, or like our designer had an idea in their head, but then through being able to play with it and see it in browser, um, and my knowledge of how CSS works, we're able to really uh, refine that design into something that works and is responsive and is performant. Um, right. Yeah, it's it's it doesn't necessarily need to be shoulder to shoulder because sometimes we work remote, but it's right. sharing a computer and working together. Right. So, like you're working in the browser, which is a big thing. Uh, you know, getting away from Photoshop comps. I mean, you can still use Photoshop, but it sounds like the idea is just to uh, build in the round, if it's, you know, like, kind of like what I say, like uh, build around, build in the browser, build where it's going to actually, design's going to live, and then be able to also uh, circumvent the whole, like, you know, the big brick wall of throwing a design over, you know, over brick wall to the programmer, and then the programmer throws it back and forth until you guys figure it out. Sounds like, so that's kind of like you short circuit that whole 
whole, you know, production cycle and just, you know, just zero in and make it and uh, try to get a product, you know, together or design that works, right? Yeah, absolutely. That's absolutely what it does. It also short, short circuits the, the knowledge transfer time. Um, mm-hmm. It does all, uh, it does a hell of a lot to build empathy between design and engineering. Mm-hmm. Um, so There's yeah. a lot that needs to be done for that. <laughs> yeah. So it's, it's one of the best ways I've seen to, to build empathy because you, it's not just throwing stuff back and forth. It's you're working together on the same thing at the same time. Right. And that's what you want to have is like making sure everyone's working on the same project um, and to a same goal. Right. So, yeah. and that, that way you, you build a, like a good partnership, you know, not just for that project, but for you know, future projects as well. So yeah. that's awesome. Yeah. That's great. That's awesome. Cool. Yeah. Cause like, um, like when I first started out, when, uh, do the programmers, programmers was just like, you know, when we had that whole like waterfall, like type thing, where just, we throw a design over, you know, the programmers, you know, if there's something you didn't as a designer, if there's something you didn't, um, plan for, but you needed to, and you didn't have a comp for it, but it just, but the programmer knew that you needed it or something like some like, uh, form action response, whatever. Uh, I would call it, my programmers would just say like, yeah, it works. So, <laughs> it's, it's like yeah it just doesn't look like anything else on the rest of the site but uh you're totally right it does meet uh the the definition of i can eat it and i will not die from it so it's not poison but we need to make sure it's in the same you know genre of food that we're delivering to the users so uh that's a food analogy which i'm famous for so everyone but uh, yeah so okay, cool cool so uh so you went from the world economic forum yep to NBC. So how long were you at World Economic Forum? Like, you just like, was it an easy transition? Or like, I was there, maybe a little bit yeah. less. Um, yeah. There, we, um, they wound up winding down the development team I was on, um, which okay. is why I wound up moving. Yeah. Um, yeah, then I moved to, to NBC, uh, where I worked with, or on the NBCU tech um Publisher seven team publisher being uh, a custom or not a custom yeah a custom configured version of uh, Drupal seven that we use mm-hmm. for the brand websites. Mm-hmm. Um, and brand being core team building. So brand being like what? NBC.com or SciFi or Telemundo or USA mm-hmm. Network. Okay, cool. Um, so I didn't work on the the actual implementations of brands per se, but I worked on kind of like the front end technology and stack and standards to be used for those implementations. Okay, cool. cool. And then, um, and then, did you get involved in SAS at some point while you're at NBC? Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. SAS yeah. thing. Yeah, because <laughs> <laughs> that's how I know you. It's like a lot from SAS, but also. Yeah. yeah, that's how I first met you. It was like through that. Yeah, so um, SAS, uh, I got involved with SAS back in the New York State Senate days. Um, mm-hmm. I was using it on the summer reading program website. And that summer I was in London for a Drupal conference. And I really wanted to talk about SAS because I had just found SAS and I was all excited and I wanted to learn more. Uh, so I, I made, 
um, I made like a couple birds of a feather sessions, kind of like non-official sessions to, I made one to talk about SAS. And this was back in the day that I didn't really know much about SAS. I really was learning. Um, but I wound up, most of the people there knew less than me. So we wound up having this, I wound up needing to teach SAS a little bit, which was fun. And I really enjoyed that. Um, and I wanted to do it again. So I submitted a SAS talk to New York's Drupal Camp 10, which was that year. Um, and it turns out that Claudina Sarai, who uh, you may know from history as the person who she and I co-founded the SAS conference, um, she had also submitted a SAS talk. And the organizers of that conference said, uh, we don't want two SAS talks, but mm. if you two work together to give one, we'll give you twice the time. Okay. So the two of us wound up giving one joint SAS talk at the Strupal camp. Um, and it went over really, really well. Um, and we kind of became fast friends from that and started organizing SAS stuff around New York city. Um, yeah. And from that organizing of the New York SAS Drupal community grew the organizing of SAS conf, um, took a couple of years from when we started that to get it off the ground. But our first SAS conf was two years ago. Our third one's this year in Austin in like three weeks. Um, I'm not organizing it this year, but Claudina still is. Um, so yeah, I got, I got involved with SAS. Uh, one of the things I was really looking forward to with SAS um, I had this crazy idea in my head that I could generate content-based media queries programmatically um, based on, like I, I started learning a lot about typography um, and this idea that I could figure out when I should have a media query based on known typography parameters and like some math around the measure. Um, and it worked really well for individual fonts, but I didn't quite know everything about fonts and font metrics and stuff like that at the time. But I dove really, really hard into SAS, um, right when like the first SAS 3.3 beta came out, whatever year that was, um, because that was the first time you could, uh, create media queries from variables. Mm -hmm. So like the moment that was available, I wrote my first bit of code to make my kind of like mad dream of programmatic content media queries come true. And at the end of the day, it didn't really like it worked, but right. squishing your browser until your content no longer looks good works so much better. <laughs> <laughs> but from that came Breakpoint, which is a SaaS plugin that probably a lot of people know. Um, yeah, I think that's like the most popular one. I think I keep on, you know, people need to use it for, like, that's one of the reasons why people use SAS, I think, is just to get to the breakpoint so they can build responsive websites, right? It's just, yeah. yeah. So Mason Wendell and I built, built Breakpoint together. Mm -hmm. um, and then around that same time, a couple months later, Scott Kellum wrote something called Singularity, mm -hmm. which was, a grid framework whose purpose was to allow asymmetric grids and kind of content first grids. Um, right. very, very early days of that back when, uh, uh, grid set 
app first kind of launched. Uh, and then Scott and I worked together on Singularity. So I wound up uh, doing a lot of work on both Breakpoint and Singularity to kind of give me that the responsive stack that I wanted. Is, is Singularity still in development or is it still... Singularity is still in development. Um, it's been really stable for a while, so there haven't been updates and right. there haven't been need to be updates, but right. it's still stable. Um, still stable, still usable, still have teams. Um, the documentation is a little bit bad. We've been meaning to update the documentation for a while and we just haven't right. had time. Um, but yeah, Singularity is still in development. Right. And I will say, like, you know, I've told you this a million times before, but. I love your singularity talk that you give that you gave. I don't think you give it anymore, but, uh, well, there's a period, like I just, I think it's all three times in one year. And I loved, I love it each time. I was just like, Oh, this is so, cause you go through the design history. I mean, there's, there's very, uh, there's a lot of respect for the design history, uh, you know, web design challenges. And then, uh, just like this whole, like, Oh, by the way, I got this like solution that won't kill you. Whoever is on some web design layouts for, for asymmetric web design layouts. So I was like, oh my, this is so beautiful. So, but, uh, but yeah, but, uh, so definitely if you get a chance, I would just, if you look it up, that'd be great. Um, I think we have it somewhere at E4H2, somewhere right there. So, um, but yeah, so, and Breakpoint, I love the, uh, you know, uh, you know, I think it's almost like kind of universal tool if you're using SAS, but I also, but I do love the, uh, Breakpoint movie references <laughs> on the website too. So just the, Nice pop culture references. Not the new movie Breakpoint, but the, the original classic. So, yeah. But, but yeah. That's, that's all Mason. Cool. Yeah. <laughs> so that's awesome. Uh, yeah. So, um, so, so you bought in SAS. Uh, you, you know, that's SASConf. It was like two years, I think, in New York City, right? Yeah. And now it's in Austin this year. I think it's, is it three weeks away? Is it? It's November 11th through 14th. All right. So, okay. So it's, it's pretty close from when we're, uh, recording this, but not too, too too close away. So, cool. Yeah, awesome. Yeah, and it's in Austin, so it's my backyard. So, really, really happy to look forward to seeing everyone come back yeah. there. So, cool. Um, and that's at sasconf.com for more details for that. So, and um, so, um, are you heavy with SAS right now, or are you still on like how's what's your relationship with SAS? Uh, so I still use SAS. I still love SAS. Um, I, I've moved away from things like, um, like prefix mixins and some of the like known transformation stuff like prefixes. I now use post CSS for or specifically like auto prefixer. Um, okay. but I still write in SAS, uh, and I still maintain in SAS and, um, only, only things that um, are that that style of transformation, not changing the work that I've written, but um, expanding on the prefixes or like kind of the the grunt cleanupy type work is things that I'll let post processors do. Um, anything that's maintenance or anything that's um, anything that's like direct transforming type things, like mixins, I still do in SAS. Um, okay. But recently, so recently I became a co-maintainer of Gulp SAS, which okay. is the Gulp plugin um, for Node SAS, um, or Gulp plugin that ties into Node SAS, which ties into Lib SAS. Okay. Um, 
So I've been maintaining that for a couple months now, and I started a all-node SaaS linter, um, oh, nice. which I will be talking about at SaaS Summit. Um, and I've been very fortunate to have two awesome guys in the UK named Ben Griffith and Dan Purdy. Um, forgive me if I get their names wrong. Um, who saw this and saw that I had kind of like a basic scaffolding done with some basic rules and said, mm-hmm. hell yes. And now <laughs> basically have written, they've combined written more SAS lint than I have, um, nice. which is the power of open source. And I love it. And I'm like, it's great. Cause we now have uh SAS lint now pretty much has all of the uh, rules that the Ruby based SCSS lint um, comes with. Uh, more or less, we're still missing a handful, like five or so. Right. Um, but it will lint SASS and it will lint SCSS uh, syntaxes. And just for people who don't know, like lint is, uh, yeah. how would you describe lint? Was Why would I need to use SAS lint? You know? So SAS linting, and I'm going to go into more to this in my talk, but SAS linting is, uh, or linting in general, is a way to ensure that um, through static code analysis, so not running your code, but just kind of looking at what your code looks like. Um, ensure things like potential, you don't accidentally write things into your code that could be potential bugs or cause potential errors. Um, and also uh, optionally, like check to make sure a style guide is followed. So a good example of somewhere where a potential bug may crop up is when you're writing SAS, um, generally you want to write custom properties after mixin declarations in case a mixin adds a property. Um, and if a mixin adds a property that you've already declared, then that mixin will override the property you've already declared. And you probably don't want that. You probably want to override the mixin. Right. So SAS lint has a rule that says, uh, uh, mixins before de- declarations, I believe is what it's called, or mixins before properties, maybe, mm-hmm. um, to ensure that if you've written um, a declaration or a mixin before or after a property, it will prop up in your console and it'll say, hey, look, uh, you did this. You probably shouldn't do this. Here's the line and the column to go fix it. Yeah, mixin before properties is my tramp stamp, by the way. I just want to kill that. <laughs> <laughs> cool. Yeah, so so that's awesome. So we're going to be talking about that at SAS Summit and more details with that. So, um, but I do like you mentioned post CSS mm-hmm. in there, and so that's relatively newish, I guess, mm-hmm. in terms of you know CSS processing and some of that. So, can you like describe what that what that means post CSS? Um, I will do the non opinionated version. <laughs> that would be great. Oh. Post CSS describes itself as a post processor for CSS, um, where you just write CSS and then let it transform things for you. Um, And it does it through plugins. The most popular plugin, I would say, far and away is Auto Prefixer. Mm -hmm. That you uh, write just, for instance, you can write um, transform, translate X 100 pixels. Um, And it will take can I use data, which is uh, browser support and browser usage, combine that with what properties you've used and spit out the, the vendor prefixes that you need. So it'll transform, it'll, it will take uh, translate or transform translate X and turn it into WebKit transform or, and Moz transform 
an MS transform as needed, right. uh, which is really fantastic for those types of transforms. Uh, right. so, so just let me rephrase it and let me know if I'm wrong. Yeah, so yeah. it would take the, the standard way that browsers should run things. And then uh, in terms of uh, properties and values uh, that's in the spec, let's say, and then it goes back and then um, spits out the vendor prefixes. Is that right? Yeah. Auto prefixer does that. Yeah. yeah. Okay. And so that's what post CSS does or is that, did I just missed that? So post post CSS at the end of the day, um, my understanding of it is it's a really fast AST for CSS AST being abstract syntax tree. So when we're talking about linting, what we're really talking about is turning um, a, a file into basically a giant tree, or you can think of it as a giant object um, that describes what each and every word basically in a file is and their nesting and all that stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's an abstract syntax tree. So post CSS creates an abstract syntax tree and it also has a plugin system that allows people to write plugins to read from the tree and act on the tree to write to oh. change the tree. Okay. Um, so the auto prefixer plugin for post CSS Mm-hmm. finds places where you have non-vendor prefixed properties, figures out oh, if wow. you need a vendor prefix, inserts the vendor prefixes, and then you have a new tree that can then be flattened down into a file. Wow, okay. So, yeah, so I had to see, like, uh, I guess I had to see more about it. I just feel like that's, like, a lot of potential for just blowing stuff up and doing some really cool stuff that you would not normally not be able yes. to. Yes, so... Um, some of the other plugins for post CSS are like use all of the SAS syntax you already do just mm. compile it through post CSS, which works for simple things like variables and mixins. Right. Um, doesn't work so well for things like extends because the extends syntax is very specific and particular um, mm. and has lots of edge cases, but for simple things like variables and mixins, it becomes easier. Um, the place where it starts to get a little bit weird and why I still prefer SAS is mm-hmm. everything's a plugin for post CSS. So if you start to rely on multiple plugins to construct the, um, meta language that you're writing in, mm-hmm. um, there's no like unifying direction or single direction for how that works, which means it might not work well together. And you might have a hard time kind of maintaining it and working with it on teams. Um, it allows for some things that I really don't like, like uh, transparent mixins. So create your own property with your own values that don't exist in the spec and probably won't exist in the spec and have it magically transform into other properties. Um, mm-hmm. That to me is kind of a smell um, because it makes it really hard for someone to track down what's happening. Um, and it's something that's been rejected from SAS, which I think is a good thing, but other people might not. Okay. So, uh, yeah, before we went to post CSS, I think we're, um, you're still at NBC universal. Yeah. And so, um, but, uh, and from what I got, you went from NBC universal, you were doing like some awesome stuff there. Like you're, uh, you're doing documentation like North, right. That was, uh, how would you describe North? Yes. So um, I think the story around North is fun. So 
I had a uh, my manager at NBC at the time I wrote North was a woman named Morgan Evans. And Morgan comes to me in November of that year and goes, Sam, so it looks like we need, or I've been asked um, to have our development standards, our front-end development standards, written like two weeks ago. (laughs) Do you think you can do it? (laughs) I'm like, yeah, sure. So North started as the web development section of Mm. using HTML5, accessibility. Um, I did some research with some developers to come up with kind of my take on BEM that uh, I use today, which has changed its name to scale. Um, Mm. But it's still often referred to as the point North version or CSS naming syntax. Um, So it started off as those dev docs. Um, but then it kind of expanded into everything that I've learned so far, kind of a giant brain dump of everything that I know that I hold to be true uh, <laughs> for what it takes to do modern web development. Right. And it covers everything from uh, content, like high level overviews, but content strategy and project management um, and design and user experience and responsive web design and performance and mm-hmm. style guides. It kind of covers the whole gamut. Um, yeah, that, that's a massive brain dump, right? It's a massive brain dump. Um, <laughs> it's, I, I think I printed it out as a PDF once and it came out to be about a hundred pages. So, um, <laughs> wow. Yeah. Um, so yeah, it's, it's a massive brain dump of, just stuff. Um, and it's, it's a couple years old at this point, but a lot of it still holds true. And I still get some decent feedback on it um, of people really liking it as like a starting point of the things you need to consider when you, when you start down this development process. Um, so yeah, that's what it is. It's pointnorth.io. Um, I just got an email auto renewing the URL, so it should be still up. <laughs> Uh, and it's all open that's source. Yeah, that's awesome. Yeah, so cool. that's what it is. And then, um, so how did you get to NBC to, uh, to NBC to uh, IBM? So I was at a conference, and I met uh, some. I met a senior developer a guy named mm-hmm. Kevin Settle, and one of the IBM design recruiters um, at a conference I was speaking at, and. A couple months later, they reached out to me um, to ask to see if I was interested. And I heard them out, and they wound up connecting me to the design executive for the Watson Group. Mm-hmm. And they wanted me to come and be the UI architect for the Watson Design Group um, and kind of and architect what our pattern library would be, like the thing that drove Watson user interfaces. Mm-hmm. Um, and that sounded interesting to me. So I accepted the position um, and I, I joined Watson uh, not this May, but the previous May. Mm-hmm. Yeah. 2014. Yeah. Okay. Um, and I've been working there since. Cool. Awesome. Yeah. And then they're based in Austin, right? Yeah, so the Watson, the, the IBM Design Group uh, is two floors in the IBM complex in Austin. 
Um, so I wound up going to Austin a lot to, to kind of hang out with them and, and do some work there. Um, and most of the Watson design group is in New York, um, or is in Austin, I should say. Uh, but Watson itself, last October, we opened up Astor Place, 51 Astor Place in New York City, which is, I believe it's still the global home of Watson. Um, and global home for Watson, that's good. Yeah, like Watson Core Technology, that's the home for Watson, or the, the corporate home for Watson. Um, and because we've got a big presence in New York, and yeah, so we've got... Uh, for a while, there wasn't a lot of designers there, but we now have Watson Engineering there. We've got Watson Marketing, Watson Sales, Watson Ecosystem. A bunch wow. of our execs are here. Um, yeah, so it's it's great. Um, and we're we're in Astor Place, which is right by the East Village of New York. Um, so it's this great young neighborhood in Silicon Alley, basically. Um, I think Facebook and AOL and J Crew are across the street. <laughs> oh man. Cool. Sweet. That's awesome, man. Yeah. So, uh, and so you've been there for a year. It's been, you know, and it's an awesome to see you in Austin more often. Yeah. So that's pretty awesome. So that's a, that's a perk I get for you for, uh, <laughs> for working for IBM. So I'm pretty sure it's not on the, uh, you know, the brochure wear IBM design. <laughs> so I get to hang out with Chris more often. Oh, cool. well, that's right. <laughs> cool. So, uh, so you've been in the industry for a while. You've done like a, like, a lot of cool things. Uh, you know, I think the from the north is, is a massive brain dump of 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 great things to work on a project. What do you see as for our industry? I'm just your point of view of like what challenges do you see in our industry going forward? So the biggest challenge I see, and I kind of work with every day, is um, is how to produce great user outcomes. And I know that sounds super marketing-y and super like busy, business-y, uh, but the biggest challenge that we have, and we see this with Google's AMP and with Apple News and with the, whatever the Facebook version of it is, is we as an industry have gotten really comfortable um, building very pretty things. Mm-hmm. Um, and we as an industry have gotten, aren't doing a great job with, performance and user experience is a big part of performance. So our performance is a big part of user experience. So sometimes our user experience suffers. And um, I saw it at NBC. I saw it at the forum. I see it now at IBM. I see can it you, when I talk to people. Can yeah. you explain the difference between performance and music? You asked because like performance, like, you know, I just came from um, event part and like, at least two talks about performance in terms of, Ah, it was a page weight, you know, that was mm-hmm. like file size. Is that what you're talking about? Or so for me, performance is more than page weight. Um, mm-hmm. Performance is page weight is a measurable aspect of performance. Um, but what's more important than page weight to me is perceived performance, how quickly user interface um, feels to a user. Okay. So while page weight's important, um, a much better indicator of, if you're going to build like a performance budget that I use is something called speed index, um, which is, I believe the official term is it's uh, the average amount of time it takes to get like the majority of the content rendered on a page. So you can have a really, really heavy website, mm-hmm. but if you can get someone interacting with your content 
very quickly mm-hmm. and they can see and interact with your content quickly, then it's, it's not okay that it's large, but you are working better for the user and you're providing a better user experience than if you just wait for that whole big thing to load before a user can start working. Okay. Um, so performance is things like how do you handle the flash of unstyled or invisible text? Right. Um, or like how long does it take for your interface or for your application or for your website to respond to user input? Yeah. So, um, like what do you mean by how long it takes to respond? Like just to, uh, to read it or to click on something or uh, not, not click away? I don't know. So there's this, there's this great article uh, about how Instagram, um, Instagram works with performance and kind of deals with how performance works in the app. Um, I don't remember what it's called off the top of my head, but basically what... <laughs> Yeah, is, is that the one where like it works on the in the uh, in the background to upload a photo and it's just it's yeah. just waiting for you to click okay because then it's like oh well I've already sent it you know yeah so exactly it uploads the picture in the background when you're applying filters and tagging stuff it yeah. then just needs to upload metadata at the end right. um, so that's a way that it hides some of the performance heavy tasks from a user to create this uh, perceived performance of something that. Um, of something that works really quickly, even though it takes a lot of time to upload images and it'll put that picture that you've uploaded directly into your timeline. The moment you click, okay. So it looks to you like it's there. Um, Mm -hmm. And that's a great way to to kind of make a user feel as if something's fast, hide some of those performance things. Um, You can do it with animation as well. There's a great talk again at JSConf about this uh, that should be posted soon. But in terms of like response times, if you click on something, how long it takes for the interface to say, okay, I've acknowledged the fact that you have clicked on something, let me start working, or this is the response. Um, the, if you've ever used FastClick or heard of FastClick, the JavaScript library, or the 300 millisecond delay on touch screens, that is kind of a killer. It's because um, what you wind up happening is when you tap on something, if you have that 300 millisecond touch delay, that already exceeds what a user perceives as instantaneous. Mm-hmm. Um, so we want to reduce that so that we can just start working immediately. Um, right. So fast click kind of like just jury rigs it into it acts faster. It, it jury rigs it so that it removes a 300 millisecond delay um, mm-hmm. from tapping on something. Um, yeah. And there, there are now a couple ways you can do it without a JavaScript library that aren't great. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, so there, that's, that's specifically for touch things. Right. Uh, but there are other instances like um, one of the recommendations that I've started giving. And the thing about performance is it's, it's about uh, uh, our physiology as humans. It's like how we perceive the world. It's not something that's just we're entitled. Um, mm-hmm. So one of the recommendations I've started giving based on research uh, into how humans work and based on research around performance and timing that other people have done is if an interface takes more than 300 milliseconds to respond, Mm -hmm. throw up a loading indicator. If it takes more than three seconds for something to respond, Mm -hmm. um, close the loading indicator, 
defer the task and allow the user to subscribe to a notification for when it's ready to, mm-hmm. for them to start working on it again to allow okay. them to keep going. So was it, what do you mean by that? Like send them an email or something or email push notification. We now have web notifications. Um, okay. That's, that's kind of the, the advice that I've been giving recently. Um, okay. But don't, don't keep a user waiting. The longer you keep a user waiting, um, the more likely it is that a user will forget what they wanted to do yeah. <laughs> um, and get frustrated and just stop. Right. I, yeah, exactly. Okay. So, uh, so performance as UX, so it's like page weight is, is an issue, but it's more like making sure they interact with your site and make sure that the, um, um, that the, your, um, they can interact with your site faster and go through it faster. And it's not, is that slowing them down? That's pretty, pretty good. Awesome. Yeah. Is there is there anything else about performance with that? Uh, you got like I mean, flash of unstyled content, and there there are a ton of things about performance. Probably yeah. too many to go into. Um, but the the talk from CSS uh, mm-hmm. from JS Conf is great. Um, one of my coworkers, Yuna Kravitz, mm-hmm. uh, gives a great talk about performance. Um, she actually gave one at BD Conf last or this year with a former designer of ours named Ryan Brownhill. So kind of like the design and the development converging in that performance talk. And that's, that's really where I love and where I live right now is kind of on the edge between design and engineering. Um, And I really love that because you need both to create a great user experience. Right. And and I love, that's what I love. I love the uh, back end. I love the front end coming together and just, Merging as two. That's one of the things I love about web design. Like, and why I got into it was just because like you just you need both. You know, I don't be like slam artists and programmers, but like it's like nice being to use both sides of the brain and uh, to, to build something really cool. Um, not that one needs you know you both need both sides of your brain, both things. But um, but yeah, performance. And so it's like flash of unstyled content is just like this it's kind of this thing where it's a boomerang thing where it's back in style to uh, it seems me to have it back in style. Like, <laughs> yeah, we, we want to have content there and then we, and then we wait for the, the web font to load and then we'll just slam it back in, into the page. Is that, is that true? Is that kind of a, the style yeah. right now? So, so there, are a, I don't think anyone's figured out a way to do web fonts really well yet. Um, mm-hmm. Partially because, of of all of the things that we have on the web that give us like load events to trigger off of, we right. don't have one for fonts. We're getting like a font loading um, API in JavaScript, but it's not supported everywhere yet. Yeah. Um, so for now, everyone's just kind of doing what they think is best. Mm-hmm. Um, so for some people, it's letting a flash of unstyled text happen and it also differs between browsers. So like Blink and WebKit, they'll make text invisible if they're downloading web fonts. Um, Firefox will have it unstyled. No, um, I think it's Internet Explorer will have it unstyled um, and then switch to styling. Mm-hmm. Or maybe Firefox does that and Internet Explorer like waits a couple seconds and then it'll go to unstyled. And then if it finally loads and it'll go to styled, something like that. They all handle it a little bit differently. Um, the way that I've started handling it is um, 
is first page loads, no one gets web fonts. Right. Um, and then loading them in the background and saving them to local storage. And then on subsequent page loads, if it's in local storage, uh, load them from local storage, but have all the fonts base 64 encoded in that. So it's a really big download um, mm-hmm. that gets saved to local storage. But once it's there, it's there. And loading from local storage is about as fast as loading from cache. Um, mm-hmm. So you just switch it on. That's what I use on my personal website. That's pretty awesome. That's pretty sweet. Yeah, I, I stole that from the Smashing Comp Free Design. I think they did that. Oh, nice. Uh, okay. And my my buddy Ian Carico does something okay. similar on his website. Yeah, because he's also speaking at SAS Summit about uh, he wrote a really cool blog post about how to build your own personal uh, CDN, and he was trying to solve that type of uh, a type of web font problem before yeah. and i i thought like this is an amazing article and it's just like it's like guys <laughs> you can have your own cdn for your own personal project or for your clients it's like pretty awesome uh yeah so he's speaking at sas summit but yeah so challenges yeah you find just performance as ux uh anything else yeah um, there doesn't have to be y'all like yeah, voices it's, you know? it's really bridging it's bridging the design and developer um, divide really, I think is the biggest challenge. Um, I've, I've recently had kind of a a change in mindset where thinking that the biggest challenges we have are, um, technological challenges. And I've kind of realized, um, that the biggest things that we, the biggest challenges that I see anyway, are all person challenges. Um, Mm -hmm. and I still see a lot of, yeah. Is it like just soft skills or just engineers versus designers or sometimes it's soft skills. Sometimes it's organizational skill or sometimes it's soft skill problems. Sometimes it's organizational problems. Sometimes Mm. it's um, hard skill problems. Um, But it's, it's being able to, to bridge the, the different skill sets Um, back, back, in the early days of web design, everyone did everything because everyone needed to do everything. Uh-huh. Um, and then we got very, very siloed in how we do work with designers only doing design and developers only doing engineering. Yeah. Um, it was really weird. Yeah. Yeah. I think we've actually had this conversation before. <laughs> <laughs> and the way that the convergence of responsive web design, what I've seen is we need to, we need to have more empathy for each other's deep skill sets, but mm-hmm. we also need to grow our horizontal skill sets. It can't just be my silo and your silo. And we play really well together, but we play really well together through talking from different sandboxes. Mm-hmm. We actually need to play in the same sandbox. And mm-hmm. you might be really, really good at digging in the sandbox, and I might be really, really good at sculpting, mm-hmm. but we need to be playing in the same sandbox and be able to help each other. Um, so I think the biggest challenges we have are organizational ones and, and people skill ones. Um, I have a, I have a blog post about, um, about how we kind of tackled this for our team because we had that problem on our team. Um, and taking some of the lessons we learned from open source, um, and applying them to our day jobs, I think is immensely important, like social coding and transparency and communication. 
Um, mm-hmm. and, and just being excellent to each other. Like <laughs> that's the thing we need to be better at. Um, yeah. And I think, yeah, I and think it, that's probably the biggest challenge for our, for our industry. Yeah. And that's, that comes from also from being, having really great managers or, or uh, supervisors. I think also is just that, you know, the culture is very important for that to happen as well. Like you need to have a culture where it's not uh, me versus them mentality. Yeah. And, and so it's and it kind of like, you know, the whole, like, uh, you know, the whole like phrase that you know, S rolls down the hill, you know? So it's just like, if, if it's, if it's accepted on high, oh, that, you know, like we need to take time out and to, and to like, you know, do that pair, you know, design work or do the pair programming or whatever to like realize that if we work together for the same goal, uh, you know, it's, it's going to be beneficial to everyone. And you, you, then you'd be able to build trust and to do great work and to be able to not just do great work, but just also to do like work that you would not expect you as a team, you know, to do that is beyond more than an individual. You know? Yeah. So definitely. And like, I see it all the time. Like since we've gotten our team working kind of more collaboratively mm-hmm. and everyone kind of built, we've built that trust now and yeah. we've built the trust to such a degree that um, our researcher and user experience designer started making HTML and code edits um, mm-hmm. in our repository. And she felt comfortable and safe doing that, um, mm-hmm. which is fantastic. And I love that because then, that means that we we've we're working together as a team, not as a bunch of individuals with specialties. Yeah. Cool. Yeah. That's, you know, that's, that's awesome. Uh, this year. So, yeah, so that's, that's pretty awesome. They say like, you know, soft skills is important. And then just, you know, realizing there's other, other teams and people with other skill sets that you need to do. I mean, cause like, you know, your North documentation is like how many pages long, you know, you just can't, you know, <laughs> Everyone can't be a Sam, you know, just be awesome and be all things. So, and That's I'm not awesome. even a Sam. Like <laughs> a lot, a lot of the things that I write about in North are things yeah. that I've experienced, but can't necessarily do myself. Right. Um, it's like I I can't design a website at all, but I've seen enough about design and I've worked enough with designers that I know about pitfalls and right. stuff like that. Yeah, and like and like. Speaking of like like empathy for others, it's also like I think I you know I think like if you don't mind me like dovetailing like that onto uh you know I was talking to Ari who's like partner at uh, Advice for Humans is is that uh you know we we don't have this like for Americans I feel like and it was just like this my I'm still working on this analogy but just like we used to have Walter Cronkite we used to have like Dan Rather to like tell us what's going on and now we have this web which is awesome internet but there's no like cultural touchstone that happens every night. I mean, I would say like Johnny Carson could have been that as well, you know? So, but then we have like, all we have now is the Super Bowl. <laughs> it's, it's our one thing, right? Like, like everyone's watching the Super Bowl or has heard of it. And we'll find out what the score is tomorrow, you know, like after the Super Bowl. So like, so everyone knows what's happening. The Super Bowl, like there's no like one fixed point, uh, like every day. Cause everyone's, you know, has devices and, and it has special things, you know, for, um, so there's no one thing. And so I feel like um, it's just like in uh, the article today about how Twitter used to be, could be awesome, but now it's a, a shouting match or a forum for abuse, which is not 
I love Twitter and whatever. Uh, and I, I use it all the time, but you no, know, there's a lot, of, a lot of room for abuse and stuff like that. So I feel like, yeah, I mean, I wish there was like more empathy on the global scale to be able to, to, uh, you know, for people online to know that, Hey, not everyone is, uh, you know, you don't have to like register your complaint to every little thing <laughs> on the internet. So it's okay. Okay. For that. Uh, except for me, I can totally do that before <laughs> for that, but, uh, especially for airlines. But, uh, yeah. And so that kind of like reminds me of our South by Southwest talk that we did uh, yes. this year. So yes, it does. I'm not sure if you heard it or not, but we, we had ran a special for the number in space, um, which was like the dramatic readings from uh, big issues and, and, and other nerdy things. And so, um, but so we actually got kind of snuck it from South by Southwest and it's like, yeah, let's just run it. Yeah. <laughs> the audio thing. And so I was really sick during that time, but I was really nervous because I had never liked anything like that, but I still enjoyed it because it actually, we, we, it's like, it was your idea. Was it your idea? I'm not sure whose idea it was. It was in the car, but it was just like, I just knew I heard it and it was your idea. And I was just like, Oh my God, this is so awesome. We have to do this for, for South by Southwest. And, uh, and so we just found all these weird, uh, bug issues where people just were not kind to one another. <laughs> not at all. <laughs> not at all. And then they were just really just, the one thing's fixed or people to understand their point of view so much that they would just write these tirades on there now so yeah so i just feel like oh man i, there, I wish we could there's one of them from there that was just it, someone was just so angry in the compass issue queue <laughs> just so angry that he yeah. couldn't even and i think i think the end of the post is i don't expect a response i just wanted to relieve myself i think <laughs> that, that ended um <laughs> And we have a we have a tone analyzer um, API for Watson, and I went back through our talk to find yeah. all of these to run them yeah. through the tone analyzer to see what Watson yeah. would pick up. Oh man! So where did you find anything? Or? That post was angry and <laughs> negative. <laughs> Go figure. Well, well, hopefully now the person has uh, expelled that negative energy well, and has moved they, on. They relieved themselves. Yes, exactly. Cool. Yeah, yeah, that was a fun, that was a fun, fun talk. So, um, cool. Uh, is there, um, we talked about challenges. Is there anything like you're, uh, you know, the challenges can be fun, but is there anything like you're really passionate about right now that you're, that you're tackling or looking at? So one thing that I've recently started thinking about, um, the way that we define a front end developer at IBM is someone kind of in four parts. HTML, CSS is kind of one part. JavaScript with frameworks JavaScript without frameworks, and then non-browser JavaScript. And we specifically say non-browser as opposed to Node. Um, because one thing that I've been thinking about recently a lot, um, and it kind of comes from a couple talks that Josh Clark gives. The first mm -hmm. one I saw was Mind the Gap. Um, mm -hmm. The second one he's just started giving at an event apart, but I don't remember what its name is. Um, about the internet of things and enchanted objects and um, what does it mean to move our user interface from glass to a physical object? Mm -hmm. And uh, like for Watson, we do a lot of things in healthcare. We have a whole Watson health initiative, um, but I can see things like education and law enforcement and, so many different places where we can extend what we see on screen 
with mm-hmm. physical objects. And I think it's really important to consider, to start thinking about how we can extend our user experience and how our user experience isn't just what someone sees, but the environment and the context that they're in and how we can, as front-end developers, help to extend the user experience of these physical objects through IoT and stuff like that. Um, So that's what I've been kind of like mulling over in my head recently is what does that look like? What does that look like for the projects that I'm working on, but also what does that look like kind of for our industry Um, to really start putting a focus on that? So anything you've uh, come to terms with or anything in particular that you've... Uh, I like the idea so far. (laughs) Pretty much what I've come to terms with. Um, (laughs) This is something that literally has started churning for like a couple weeks now. Um, But... I, I like it and I want to, to poke around in it a little bit more. Um, yeah, I've, I've been introduced to a lot of, I've been very fortunate that I was able to go to JSConf in May and be part of work on the, the node robotics day and got to like actually build a robot in node and see what it takes to build something physical using JavaScript. Um, and it was really fun. Yeah. Like so, so fun. I went out and bought a 3D printer and a bunch of other stuff to like support oh, nice. this terrible new habit of mine. Oh man! And I yeah. really want to start playing around with that. Yeah, it's it's pretty awesome. Like I, I did a Robux course with uh, uh, Cassandra Perch, I believe is her name, and so uh, just just like a one afternoon course, and it was pretty awesome just to be able to build something, even so it was so minor, but just able just to program it and just just get working. So I thought it's pretty awesome. And then, uh, and then my nieces and nephews are building with Raspberry and you know Pi and all that stuff. And I was like, "Holy cow!" That they were able to just you know so cheaply uh, just build a computer and robots. So yeah, it's crazy, crazy world. But cool, awesome. Um, anything in the in the future you're excited about? Other than anything else? Other than SASConf and SAS Summit and all, all <laughs> the things. Um, all the things. Yeah, I mean, I'm I'm excited to see to see kind of I I've, I've started doing a lot of organizational transformation work at at the office. Um and I'm kind of excited to see how that goes and see if we can we can do some of this the stuff that I've been talking about and and hopefully be able to help others do that as well. Um and kind of start to see where where we take this idea of um the internet of things and extend that into user interfaces and not just internet of thingsy type plop down things. Like what do you mean by plop down things? Like um, iBeacons are an internet of things thing mm-hmm. where you just kind of plop them down somewhere and then an interface reacts to the fact that that exists. But mm-hmm. kind of what the next step of internet of things are and how that reacts to the user interfaces I'm working on. So not an interface that reacts to a stationary thing, but an interface that reacts to something that someone's using. Okay, cool. Um, so yeah, I'm, I'm interested in, in exploring those. I don't know where or how, but I'm interested in to start exploring those, and that should be fun. Well, yeah, is it anything like Alexa at all? Or? So Alexa to me is, is another one of those like IoT plop-down things. It's, it's a plop-down IoT with a personal assistant. Right. Um, but it also does some home automation. So home automation is probably where I'm going to start playing with mm-hmm. initially. Um, 
just to kind of like get my IOT feet wet. Mm. Um, there was this amazing, there was this amazing JSConf like talk in Berlin where someone used um, post CSS and node and JavaScript mm-hmm. to control the lighting rig for a whole room. And he was able to change the colors and change how all the lights worked through custom CSS properties. So he was basically writing CSS and doing all the lighting for the room. And that was awesome. Yeah. Um, so starting to like play with that and see how other people play with that. Um, Cause I, I think that in order for us to evolve our interfaces, we're going to need to go there. Um, yeah. And I think that'll be fun to play with because that's a whole new era of things and a whole new system of things. Right. I think that's like uh, that goes. That kind of scares me a little bit because uh, <laughs> it reminds me of the Simpsons episode where uh, the house from the future tries to kill the Simpsons. So uh, I'm a little worried about that. But, uh, <laughs> but, yeah. but I also see the beauty of it too. So yeah. Cool. Awesome. Well, I think that's a good stopping point. Unless there's anything you want to add to the end. No, just thanks for having me. Oh, man, thanks. Thanks. It was a great conversation. Thank you so much for being here. And I will hope to talk to you soon. 